you first posed that question, the rhetorical question of, you know, is soft a profession? I imagine that folks from all ranks, if they heard you say that in their face, would look at you like, you know, you're asking, is the sky blue? Welcome to the One CA Podcast with your host for today, Benjamin Ordway. LC38brand.com, the civil affairs lifestyle brand. A little bit of something for everybody. T-shirts, polos, shorts, hats, flags and posters for your walls, and stickers for everything else. Celebrating the heritage of civil affairs from the civil reconnaissance of Lewis and Clark through the monuments men of World War II and companies of Vietnam. Representing the present teams of the global war on terror, we have items for citizen soldiers of USA KPOC and warrior diplomats at Fort Bragg alike. LC38brand.com. It's cool to like your job. Good afternoon. The Civil Affairs Association welcomes Dr. C. Anthony Pfaff to 1CA Podcast. Dr. Pfaff is the author of a recent article, Professionalizing Special Operations Forces, which appeared in the autumn 2022 issue of Parameters. Dr. Pfaff is the research professor for strategy, the military profession, and ethics at the U.S. Army War College Strategic Studies Institute and is a senior non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. He holds a master in philosophy from Stanford University and a doctorate in philosophy from Georgetown University. I am your guest host, Ben Orderway. I'm a civil affairs officer and have spent all of my time in the 95th Civil Affairs Brigade. I'm a nascent philosopher, having recently graduated with a master's in philosophy from the University of Michigan. I am here in an unofficial capacity today, which brings us to the disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the podcast guests and are not necessarily those of the Department of Army, the U.S. Army War College, the United States Military Academy, or any other agency of the U.S. government. With Tesla Government's Knowledge Management Solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. we're off. Good afternoon, Dr. Pfaff. Thank you for joining me today to discuss a topic that you have long investigated. Happy to be here. All right. So civil affairs, being a member of SOF, has a lot to learn from your discussion today. Um, And I guess I would introduce why I think you're a great guest. As some of the listeners will know, I'm working on this issue of moral reasoning and more broadly SOF ethics education and training very much from the bottom up team level. And your recent article, uh, you take an incisive and insightful approach that is very much top-down, institutionally focused. So in your recent article, my take is that you push back a bit on the U.S. SOCOM Comprehensive Review, which states, uh, quote, the review team did not assess that U.S. SOCOM has a systemic ethics problem. Could you briefly respond to that claim and then provide your take on why professionalizing SOF is fundamental to addressing an organization's ethical climate and a SOF individual's moral reasoning and ethical decision-making? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. And, I, I, you know, I'm not so much pushing back, I think, as trying to pick up where it left off. And uh, as you know, I uh, was asked to actually take up uh, uh, to, you know, this question. And as I was reading through the uh, the, the, the comprehensive review, uh, it made a point about how, well, part of the problem is special operation forces. It's not just about op-tempo, but it's also about uh, it, it's different uh, facets, uh, different recruiting and assessment uh, programs and uh, ways of getting in. They're all very inconsistent and uneven. They're not, you know, special operations command itself doesn't really have direct control over that. Uh, not They don't have any influence, but then I kind of 
kind of focused in on the ethical issues themselves. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think the thing that the conference review probably ignored that it shouldn't have is you know, when it says, for example, there's no systemic uh, ethical, you know, problem. Well, they're right in the sense that you can't get to a systemic ethical, an assessment of a systemic ethical problem by anecdotes in the Rolling Stone, uh, Washington Post, or, or media. But, uh, uh, you know, and, and there's nothing in any of these sources to compare it to, say, you know, a comparable population in the conventional force. Uh, that might be worth doing. However, uh, the real issue is, Congress gets involved. Uh, and from the perspective of a profession, uh, all professions have a client. Uh, doctors have patients, lawyers have cl uh, clients. And for the military, that client is essentially the US government, which represents the American people. So when Congress is telling you they're worried and exercising its own kind of oversight, you have a problem of professionalization. Uh, then the question is, what do we do about that? Uh, how would that, you know, so if we're going to, that A, first of all, reframes the problem from things like worrying about op-tempo, which suggests measures of, you know, measures like uh, the preservation, the force, and the family initiative, which is a good thing. I don't want to take away that from, you know, it's certainly something that would help, but it's not just about adjusting the op-tempo. It's about thinking, it's about adjusting how you think about what you're doing. Um, so in that regard, uh, the, the first question to ask, you know, well, is uh, special operations forces a profession? And there it gets kind of interesting, right? Because you have, uh, when you think of special operations, you know, you've got, you know, uh, Green Berets, you got Delta, you got SEALs, but you have civil affairs. You have information operations. You have a host of other things that uh, are all fall under uh, special operations command. All conduct and participate in special operations, but it's not clear what unites them because uh, profession has to not only have a single jurisdiction but an expert body of knowledge that goes along with that. And is that the case for special operations? And currently, maybe not. But I think, as I argue in the paper, it could be. Again, this isn't saying that civil affairs. And other, you know, uh, uh, factions, uh, other uh, facets of special operations. I, think I, may have got, I may have gotten it right the first time. I'm not sure. Uh, facets of special operation forces uh, don't play roles in in the in the full spectrum of combat and conflict. But there seems to be a special role that the combination of special operators, uh, civil affairs, information operations, and so on play below the threshold of war. We can call that space. Many different names. Sometimes we call it the gray zone. Sometimes we think of it in terms of hybrid warfare. But this seems to be a unique space which really doesn't have a single U.S. institution that owns it as a jurisdiction. If you look at the Army's professional, the Army, which has probably been the most forward-leaning in terms of making, staking out a professional claim, staking out an expert body of knowledge, and staking out jurisdiction, it talks about the application of land power. Okay, uh, that's certainly going to favor conventional operations. And again, not that it doesn't have a role below the threshold of war. Uh, it's just that it's not really its jurisdiction, or it's not exclusively its jurisdiction. So, uh, uh, so what seems to unite special operations forces uh, and all those associated with special operations command is they all work in this space together, uh, or can, 
but what we don't have is, you know, that institution that sort of has the responsibility of a staking out the jurisdiction, dealing with competitors, and uh, developing the doctrine and expert body of knowledge necessary to harmonize all those different aspects. So the first thing is, you know, let's take a look at that. The question, you know, what would that look like? Where would special operations forces invest, and would it be worth it to build that jurisdiction? Hi, I'm Doug Hurst, CEO of Third Order Effects, the premier choice for governance and cultural advising. 3OE was created to fill the need for improved governance advising for use by the Departments of Defense and State, USAID, foreign governments, and the private sector. Contact us at thirdordereffects.com. Right, and I, I was just thinking the, the value of the education you got. I mean, because when you first posed that question, the rhetorical question of, you know, is SOF a profession? I imagine that folks from all ranks, if they heard you say that in their face, would look at you like, you know, you're asking, is the sky blue? Um, but you bring out... I think there'd be a different response with different words. Right, right. Well, this is a, this is a 1CA podcast. It is PG rated. Um, because, I mean, you know, I wrote, again, from a bottom-up perspective, and I think the only reason I, I not separated at the neck is because I'm a young guy and I don't I have a very small uh, audience, um, but your paper is is getting to some fundamental issues where um, the the idea that we don't have an ethics problem until there's a certain number is kind of a a standard almost Excel file way of evaluating a unit or an organization. Right. Well, we only have a few. If we do the math and we see how many people we have, then. Um, you know, Dr. Joe Long recently made the same point, and uh, I think it's worth highlighting that if you just go off of sheer, um, you know, per capita violations, well, you're making a lot of, I think, dangerous assumptions about your organization in that the only ones that you have are the ones that are caught. Well, we know that's not the case. Um, for every drunk driver that goes on the road, how many aren't you catching, you know? Um, so there's that issue, but also- At least I, one. <laughs> Just yes, yes. <laughs> but also this issue that ethical violations are discrete data points within your organization, almost like vehicle maintenance. And I, I got to thinking that sometimes we look at ethics the same way, where until we hit a certain number of vehicles in the motor pool that are deadlined or are uh, amber, our vehicles, our, our unit is still good to go. And I'm like, well, that. That is kind of interesting. Um, but the problem is, uh, last time I checked, the adjacent vehicle next to mine, if it's deadline, doesn't cause me to be deadlined as well. But that's not how ethical issues in an organization work. They infect the organization uh, and it can become a systemic issue in the long run. So just asking a question like, is soft a profession, cuts past these, I think, these initial responses of numbers and yes, we're a profession, we act professional. Well, that's not enough. You've already brought up... Um, you know, there are some there are some fundamental criteria you must meet to be a profession and jurisdiction being the main one that we're talking about today is do all these disparate, you call them factions or or, or uh, facets, do they all fall under the same, same jurisdiction? I think the answer is going to be yes. But do we train and educate folks to have a common identity that supports that jurisdictional mindset? I don't know. So I think um, you've given the organization, I imagine your paper is still causing some waves. I'd be curious to hear how it was received. 
Uh, well, um, I'm going to touch on a few things you just said, and then I'll try to answer your other question. When you take that step, and so, so the first point you made, you know, whether or not it can be united under a jurisdiction, sure it can. We did, I just described how, whether that's the whether that's the only way, whether or not there's another alternative out there that's better than the one I proposed, you know, possibly uh, worth exploring. It would take, you know, some leadership and some effort to actually do this, but, you know, that's certainly, you know, certainly possible. But the benefits of it are this, however you go about nailing down your jurisdiction and your expert knowledge is a professional looks at things a little differently. And you can see this, this is the other thing I kind of, I take up in the paper, uh, where you have, as I was looking through how special operation people were sort of addressing this issue, uh, you saw, I, I, I talk about the field guide, the ethics mm -hmm. field guide that they had help from the Brigham Young professors to do. Uh, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in there. However, it does some, it frames a lot of issues, a lot of, it poses a lot of dilemmas and frames them as right versus right. Uh, the example I, one of the examples I pick up on in the paper is one where the right versus right choice is do you turn your friend in for turning in uh, who's stealing um, uh, stuff on a thermal sites from an arms room? Um, and they see this as right versus right. From a professional perspective, you have a duty to your client to use the resources, in this case, the American people, you know, to, to use the resources uh, appropriately. And so whatever the solution is, if you see it as right versus right, you shouldn't even see it that way as a professional. Uh, it is, you know, uh, because of that duty to the client, stealing from the arms room is wrong. As a professional, you're obligated to turn the person in. Uh, if that person had any shred of professionalism left, he or she would understand. So uh, there was another, uh, I mean, actually, there was a couple of articles I picked up on a few, but one where, uh, you know, there's this idea of framing that Special operation forces are required to do unethical things. And the real problem is, according to these, not me, uh, uh, is they is that we're doing unethical things in this sphere uh, uh, in our work. And then it gets blurry when we leave that environment. Uh, that's not really how professional thinks about it. It is wrong for me to plunge a knife into somebody's chest. It is wrong for me to try to do surgery. Uh, it is not wrong for a doctor to plunge a knife into somebody's chest and, and, as long as they're performing you know, their role as a doctor and that surgery meant to heal the patient. And even if that's what I'm trying to do, it'd still be wrong for me to do it. So a better way for a professional to think about these things is professionals do things that it would be unethical for non-professionals to do because the professional, A, has the knowledge uh, and skill to do it, but also the ethical orientation. They're doing this for the benefit of the client. Any harm or risk they put the client out at is for the benefit of the client. That's the way a professional will look at these problems. So sure, as special operation forces are required to do difficult things, uh, they're required to do things that, you know, outside of that professional context would be unethical. Probably, you know, you know, whether it's a, a deception campaign by information operations, whether it's kinetic operations by uh, or whatever, you know, whatever that is, where, you know, you're risking killing an otherwise legitimate target, but also risking collateral harms. Uh, conceiving these things is inherently unethical is, is going to make it very difficult for you. And it's not necessary when you have this professional mindset. Right. Uh, I think I know what Arthur you're referring to. We will just keep it uh, like it is right now. But um, well, you can read the paper. <laughs> I think one thing that 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 
special forces officer who wrote that was indirectly getting at though was what I would frame as an, an issue of you know moral wisdom, moral judgment, because yes, you have jurisdiction that is activated, for lack of a better word, in a in a way that is when you're deployed that you don't lose your jurisdiction, but you'd lose just like the surgeon doesn't conduct surgery, God willing, in Seven Eleven conducts it in a surgery ward, right? The special operations service member does his or her job in those environments for a purpose that is sanctioned. Um, and I believe, if I remember that article correctly, the concern was, well, look, I don't know when to turn it on and off. Guys are making mistakes back home because they don't know that they're, by analogy, not in the surgery ward anymore. Let me tell you about the Civil Affairs Association, the main sponsor of the 1CA podcast. The association promotes esprit de corps and disseminates relevant information. Membership costs are low. E1 through E4 pay only $5 a year. E5 through E9 pay $20. Cadets and midshipmen pay $10. And officers and civilian pay $25 a year. Life membership is also low. Pegged now at $200. So if you're committed to the CA community, then it makes a lot of sense to invest in a life membership and save in the long term. Role and location, right? Right. I mean, if the doctor has to do surgery in the Seven Eleven, there's nothing wrong with the um, uh, there's nothing wrong with the doctor um, uh, doing surgery in the Seven Eleven as long as you know he or she is in you know performing their role as a doctor. Right. So it's not about location. It's not even really just about context. It's about role, and it's about you know understanding your role is to be oriented to under in a way that you not only un, that you take on missions or operations that are ethical and that you have an ethic that's the other thing all the professions we're talking about have an ethic that governs them so you are doing things that would be normally unethical for a, a non-professional to do but you also have a code of ethics to ensure that you're doing it you know, as, as ethically as possible so and there is you being in a role so it's not about your location it's about the role you, you took on so when you go home and your dad or your mom you know, you're in another role. So it does require those kinds of shifts. But what you shouldn't be doing is engaging in things that even in the professional context, you believe this is still wrong. This is unethical. Um, and uh, and I don't want to, you know, and it wasn't just the one article. I saw, I saw that argument made a lot. That one just made it the best. Uh, and actually it had some really good insights in it itself. But, but again, I'm just trying to, these are just illustrations of how, right. if you think of yourself as a professional, maybe that's the other thing to point out. Think of yourself as a professional. That reframes the way you're thinking about the actions that you're doing and the dilemmas that arise that address the kind of cons- you know, that, 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 that actually give you more to work with when it comes to not only being ethical yourself, but motivating those beliefs and others that uh, will set conditions for a better command climate, uh, for better ethical behavior, better ethical outcomes. Right, because you got something to grab onto. Now, of course, I should realize I'm talking to a philosopher, so every word I say is going to be scrutinized, as it should be. And of course, I don't mean that professionalism stops or is zip code dependent or theater war dependent. Um, Maybe it was a bad analogy in retrospect, but the idea that you would have fundamentally different ways of um, being as as a, in terms of your character, Shifting in location seems to me problematic because, um, well, what, what about training? That's realistic military training. Do, are we okay to lie then? Are we doing bad things? Like, no, this is all in the service of um, legitimate military missions, 
it's in the service of your proper jurisdiction. It's because it aligns with your role. And there's a code of ethics that right. governs it. So even in those contexts, even in that role, you're not allowed just to do anything. So for instance, the doctor's allowed to prescribe drugs that benefit the patient, but it's a problem when the doctor's taking a kickback from the drug company, right? Even though that drug might be, so similar to military operations, there's, you know, there's legitimate targets of deception and there are illegitimate targets of deception. Right. You have to pay attention to that. There's legitimate targets for kinetic, you know, for, for, for kinetic drugs, and there's illegitimate. So you have to be able to, you have to understand that professional ethic. We get to have some wisdom and to know when and yeah. when and where, while always realizing that, and uh, this is a later, uh, maybe a different podcast, but in talking in terms of values instead of possibly virtues, people um, might think that when I'm in the uniform, I have to uphold these values. And when I'm not in the uniform, well, those are those organizations' values. I'm at home or I'm on leave. Now, okay. you know, if you're in profession, it's kind of like supposed to be in you. Um, if we could shift, and it's a related to the last uh, previous point about the concern maybe some leaders might have with addressing this issue as it relates to reducing the number of headlines in Rolling Stone or Washington Post. I have a question uh, from the field from an active duty um, CA battalion commander. The question is, when do we know if a unit has an ethics problem? Is there a tipping point in the number of instances that indicate that there is something systemic at work? So I saw this as a, you know, a Sorites paradox question, like when does it become a heap? Um, and I kind of alluded to my, you know, my views on it in the motor pool example, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how do you know if you have an individual issue or an organizational issue? Uh, that's a great question, and I don't think there's any one answer. Certainly, certainly, not, you know, quantity is a quality of its own. Um, so, if you are having a number of issues, then uh, uh, it's certainly worth looking if there's any underlying causes for. You can do what, what I started with is looking at the underlying, you know, what, just starting with the underlying causes. Are you thinking about what you're doing, you know, in, in a framework that's conducive to ethical behavior? When you look at the professional framework, and I should say I'm using professional professions and professional in a specific sense. Because mm -hmm. sometimes we mean it that I'm just very good at my job or that I'm getting paid for my job. But I'm using it in the sense that there is a jurisdiction, expert body of knowledge, to which you have autonomy, uh, and so on. So in that regard, if you if if that and it's not this doesn't have to necessarily be formal. I mean, if that's how you and your soldiers are thinking about what they're doing, and there is a code of ethics that is governing it, and from what you're observing there is, you know, that's going to set the right conditions. Leadership then monitors, you know, ensures that those uh, norms are being observed, mm -hmm. you know, trains on that, then, you know, you're probably doing the most you can. But if you look at those underlying conditions, you say, I, I, I you know, I, I, I think of what I'm doing as unethical, uh, but permitted, which is a nonsense, you know, a nonsensical kind of thing, way of thinking about it. Uh, if I'm, I'm thinking my, what I'm doing is somehow unethical, if I'm thinking about uh, myself and not my client or my unit and not my client. If I'm not figuring out what that greater good is that you know, all these efforts are supposed to uh, be serving. And I'm also looking outside my battalion to see what kinds of influence, you know, what, what the other influences are and how I could be an influence to, to influence that climate that is conducive to ethical behavior. So, uh, sure, if you've got a lot of violations, you probably have a problem. But if you're not thinking about yourselves as professionals in the sense that I've articulated, that's at least one other way to kind of get a sense that you've got, you know, the right kind of ethical climate. Right. Uh, because even if you don't have problems in the short term, if you don't have the fundamentals down, then it's almost just passing the buck to someone else right. to establish them. 
when you say ethics training, I think you get some eye rolls, and I think you should get some eye rolls uh, from, from service. Yeah, sorry if I said ethics training. Uh, yeah. No, 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 you you did. I actually I support the the uh, the use of the word. I'm just trying to say why I support it. The initial, the traditional sense is right. You know, the PowerPoints or the LPDs or the what we call brown bags. Um, we talk about it. And you get a certificate or, or a printout or whatever, and then you're good for the quarter. And I think if that's what people have in mind, then they should roll their eyes. What I'm interested in is moving beyond the classroom, not, not stopping what happens in the classroom, but taking the existing military field training we have and then extracting kind of the moral content and elevating it and then coaching people on the decisions they've already made so they have an opportunity to reflect on their, their moral reasoning to improve their moral judgment in the end. So that's the bottom-up approach I have, and I think it unites nicely with your top-down approach. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.